On Wednesday night, the National Conflict Resolution Center and the San Diego Union Tribune brought together leaders from around the country, Charleston and Charlottesville, Pittsburgh and Oak Creek, Wisconsin, places we've heard about in the news, places we now have something in common with ever since the April 27th shooting at the Chabad of Poway. I'm Christina Davis, and this is a special edition of ReFocus. What you're about to hear is audio from this emotional night where these leaders talked about their own efforts to confront hate. It's a great privilege to have helped to organize this event with such remarkable speakers on such a pressing topic, fighting hate in our community. My deepest thanks to our partners, the National Conflict Resolution Center and the Kroc Institute for Peace and Justice, and to each of you and for the audience online for paying attention. Uh, we have the dean of the school uh, uh, here tonight, Patricia Marquez, in the audience. So thank you, Patricia, for being our partner. Uh, because of the nature of tonight's discussion, I, I do want people to know there'll be zero tolerance for any disruptive or disrespectful behavior. Not that I expect any. It's a little hard to hear up here what's going on, so if anybody feels like they have a problem and they're part of the audience, raise your hand and say something, and anybody who's being disruptive will be removed uh, immediately. Okay, now with that, I'm pleased to introduce Andrew Bloom, Executive Director of the Kroc Institute for Peace and Justice, to launch tonight's program. Hello, everyone. I, I wanted to add my welcome and, and my thank you to all of you uh, for coming out, um, as Jeff said, on such an important topic. Um, on behalf of everyone at the Kroc School, we, we want to say we are deeply honored and, and humbled to be partnering with the National Conflict Resolution Center and the San Diego Union Tribune on this event. Uh, thank you to Jeff Light and to Steve Dinkin for your vision and, and your partnership. The Kroc School is a global hub for peace building. At the core of Mrs. Kroc's vision for the school was to create a place where peacemakers, like the individuals you're going to hear from tonight, could come together to share their stories, to share what they've learned with our students, with the university, and also with the San Diego community as a whole. We talk a lot here at the Kroc School about learning with, learning with peacemakers and change makers who are trying to build a more peaceful, a more just, a more tolerant world. The very reason for this event tonight is to learn powerful lessons. So what I would ask of you tonight is while you are being inspired, while you are being moved, and, and you will be moved, is to also think about what we can learn. What we can learn about answering the type of tough questions that our students here at the Kroc School wrestle with, but that everyone doing this work wrestles with. As I listen tonight, I will be reflecting on what we can learn about questions like, when a tragic event happens, what can we do with our anger? How can we use that anger constructively? How can we honor the grief and the suffering people are going through 
while also working to bring people together. How do we include people in this work who don't want to be included? How do we engage those who don't want to be engaged? And what do we need from each other, not just as individuals, but what do we need from our communities and our governments at every level if we are to truly confront hate and foster tolerance? I'd like us to think about these questions, not because there will be easy answers tonight, but because if you're in this room, my guess is you want to build a more tolerant San Diego. The question is not should we do this, but how do we do this? So to begin our evening tonight, to begin our process of thinking and reflecting and learning, I am really privileged to be able to introduce Rabbi Israel Goldstein. <laughs> rabbi Goldstein is the founder and rabbi of Chabad of Poway, a synagogue and Jewish community and outreach center. He serves as the Jewish chaplain of the Poway Sheriff's Department. He has spoken in a wide variety of venues, including at the White House National Day of Prayer, bringing his powerful message about the virtue of goodness and kindness in the face of hate. We're so lucky to be able to hear from him tonight to spend a little bit of time with us. Um, he will have to leave soon after this but because he is a very busy man, but we wanted him here tonight. So again, join me in welcoming Rabbi Goldstein. Thank you very much, Mr. Light. You've brought lots of light to the world. <laughs> that has been actually my tagline throughout all this. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I came here to Rancho Banaro Poway first in 1984, and then in 1986, I married and dedicated our life to build a center, a community center that's gonna be open to all, a preschool for all, a senior center, a synagogue, a banquet hall, and we successfully built this beautiful community center. We began first in trailers, and then we got to build this building dedicated it to 1997. Living in Poway, northern San Diego, a nice suburban area, we felt very safe. We felt very comfortable. We felt very welcome. The city officials helped us build our building, got us all the permits very quickly. They were very eager to welcome a synagogue to their community. I brought up my family, my wife and I, with our six kids. And just two weeks before Passover, our youngest daughter got married. And they joined us for Passover. This year, Passover in beautiful San Diego was a true sense of freedom, celebration, of being free people. 
It all started in Egypt. Some 3,000 years ago, we were slaves for 200 years. And then we became free people. So we understood what it means to appreciate freedom so that every year we relive it. Every year we have a Passover Seder, we sit around the table and we read about what used to be and we read about now. But there's one verse that resonates there that says in every generation they rise up against us to take us down, but God Almighty saves us from their hands. And it's right in the middle of the Seder, we sing it, we cry with it, we pray with it. It's a harsh reality. But I thought that I escaped that reality when I left New York, growing up in a very diverse neighborhood in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York. I was five years old when I had a little charity box that I was helping raise funds for our school. And I was mugged just at five years old. That was my first encounter with anti-Semitism. I didn't understand it, what it meant at the time. I couldn't understand why would someone follow me home and as soon as I was going to my alleyway, they'd push me down to the ground and take my little charity box away and say some not kind words. But it didn't faze me. I grew up. I had an amazing mentor, a rabbi, became a world leader, Rabbi Schneerson, the head rabbi of the Chabad movement, who began in 1950 trying to rebuild the Jewish nation after the days of the Holocaust. And he taught us that everyone has the ability to lead. He didn't have followers, he had leaders. And he taught us the concept of looking forward and looking ahead. He had the toughest job, taking a generation who has just endured the loss of a third of our nation in the worst of ways, seen the worst of humanity. And he lifted up the spirits of anyone who met him, including myself. And I grew up saying to myself, one day, I want to be a pioneer. One day, I want to be able to go to a community and I want to build up a community center. I want to build up a center that's going to be a a lighthouse to share light, blessings, love, camaraderie, laughter, singing, dancing. And this was my, my life's mission from a little childhood on. And I got that wish. I got to build this beautiful community center in Poway. And I got to see thousands of students come and go and just play, laugh, sing. It was beautiful. It all came to a screeching halt just 39 days ago. 39 days ago, San Diego joined the ranks, sadly, of a city where a synagogue, six months to the day, was attacked in the worst of way. The first days of Passover, it's about the past. 
the last day of Passover is about the future. We read from the prophet Isaiah where it talks about a world where people live in peace with each other. No jealousy, no hatred, no sickness. The wolf and the lamb graze together. And I looked forward to every year reading that because living in a world that we are living now in is such a paradox. So much prosperity, so much advances in so many areas, but the paradox is so much darkness. And, and so many are lost. So many are, are living a life aimless, godless. And it's a true paradox. Come to realize that we need to pray for better times. And that's what I was looking forward to that Saturday morning 39 days ago when I left the sanctuary to go freshen up. I saw Mrs. Laurie Kay standing in the lobby. I, she asked me what time is memorial services. I tell her another 15 minutes. I go to my office, freshen up. I come back out. I walk through the lobby. I see her. She winks at me. I wink at her. And I turn around to go to our banquet hall where the washing sink is. And within seconds, I hear the first gunshots. I turn around to see what those noises are. And I get to see right in front of me, not 10 feet away from me, a rifle with this murderer, this terrorist aiming right at me. Behind me, I hear children playing. My own grandkids are playing there. I had a split-second decision to make. Where do I go? What do I do? How do I react to this evil darkness entered, violated our sanctuary, our beautiful home? What do I do at this very moment? And it was a split-second decision. Your instincts kick in. You got to save the kids, no matter what happens to you. As he lifts up his rifle and takes aim at me, I just turn around to grab the kids. As I turn around, he ends up getting my, both of my index fingers. And I continue, I corral the kids out of the room, brought them to safety. I come running back up, ready to run in the line of fire, not knowing what has happened since I left. It was a, a horrific silence. I had the worst of fears that perhaps he has massacred everyone in my sanctuary. That, that was what was running through my mind. I ran through the lobby, saw them working on Lori. I looked in the sanctuary, I saw it was empty. I saw people trying to call 9-11, they couldn't get through. I ran into the reception office and I started to dial 911. It was then that I realized I lost a finger. I kept on dialing again and again, couldn't get through, very frustrating, feeling very helpless. But as soon as I saw the first responder arrive, I went outside and I saw my congregants huddled together in absolute fear and terror and horror. I saw the look on their faces and I says, I gotta do something for them. I grabbed a chair and I stood up on a chair and I announced to them, I said, 
We just read it at the Seder table. Yes, in every generation they rise up against us. But God will spare us. God has spared us today. And stand tall and stand strong. We cannot let this destroy us. We cannot let this take away our freedom. We're not going to let this happen. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs, getting it through to them. And I said, let's sing together. Let's sing a song of hope. Let's sing a song of faith. And I shouted out the words, the most famous words in Hebrew, Am Yisrael Chai, the nation of Israel lives on. Until the paramedics finally forced me to go to the hospital for a five-hour surgery on my hands. But what I did not know was the effect it had on my congregants when they saw the rabbi standing on a chair with blood spurting out. I had it wrapped with a prayer shawl. And they saw me standing and giving them encouragement and telling them, I, I, we're, we're in the eye of the storm. We're in the, in the midst of a mass shooting and I'm showing them, no, we're not gonna let this take us down. It gave them so much strength that what happened afterwards was reported to me. They went to the next door neighbor to a home and they continued the prayer services. They didn't run home, but they ran to continue and finish reading the prophecy to continue reading the words that one day there will be peace in this world. One day there will be no longer hatred. One day there will be no longer jealousy. It was that night after I got out of surgery when I was surrounded by family and friends. They asked me what my message was. My message was loud and clear. A memory of a letter when I was 17 years old. I was in a suburb of Paris, France. I was sitting and studying in rabbinical school. And I wrote a letter, I penned a letter to the Grand Chabad Rebbe, my rabbi. I said, I'm having a hard time concentrating on my studies. And I have many intruding thoughts. And could you give me some advice? Or give me a blessing that I can have more clarity. And the Rebbe himself would receive thousands of letters a day from leaders, heads of countries with far bigger problems than an adolescent trying to figure out concentration and studies. So I really did not expect an answer. But it was helpful for me to write to him and get his blessing, whether I got an answer or not. But lo and behold, about a month later, I get an answer. Here I am, 17 years old, and the grand, the world leader, writes a letter to me. It was an earmail letter. For those of my generation who know what that is, <laughs> the blue trifold paravion. And I very open it up. And what does he write to me? And he writes as follows He says, when you're dealing with concentration, don't challenge the intruding thoughts, just change channels. 
And he writes at the end of the letter, if a little bit of light pushes away a lot of darkness, how much more so a lot of darkness. That message resonated with me my whole life. Whenever I encountered any level of darkness, of evil, I always light a candle. I always not only think of something bright, but I do something bright, something and action that's going to create light. And that became my tagline from this whole event. There was a momentarily darkness in our sanctuary when the terrorist violated our holy, beautiful place that was accustomed to listening to children sing, to hear hymns and prayers being sung, replaced with gunfire, but that lasted 10 rounds. And then miracles upon miracles began to occur. Miracles that the shooter did not know how to change his magazine. So there was, he came equipped with enough ammo to kill every single one of us. And the reason why he came, as he wrote on his manifesto, was only because we were Jewish. That's the only reason why he came to take me down and to take us down. And he had all intents of taking everyone down. But miraculously, we lost just one. Miraculously, there was an army veteran, Oscar, who took the opportunity to dodge towards him. But when Oscar came there, he sees a chair flying right at the shooter. Till this very day, Oscar cannot identify who threw that chair. No one has come forward to say that they threw the chair. Either it's an unsung hero or some angel came. Enough to startle the shooter to turn around and leave. Jonathan Morales, the Border Patrol agent, came running in pursuit. Zach Beresovsky, a 70-year-old Russian immigrant who left Russia because of anti-Semitism growing up in such harsh times. He hears the gunshots, he runs towards the gunshots, not away from it, to help Oscar and Jonathan. Here we see heroes, the best of humanity, that replaced the worst of humanity. The message that I have taken from it personally, you know, my life has changed forever. Besides losing the finger, looking down the barrel of a rifle faced right at you, it changes you. But how does it change you? You know, you could you cannot change what other people do, but we can change how we react. I chose to react in a very specific way. Someone told me the other day, Rabbi, I think you're suffering from post-traumatic growth syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> that I have transformed myself it's just been 39 days. I'm still licking my wounds. I just came today for my first occupational therapy. It was not a pleasant experience. And, and, and I know my physical wounds will heal, 
waiting for the finger to grow back one day. <laughs> I know the scars are there. I know they'll be there. But it energized me in a way that I never understood. I don't know if you have followed my journey since the shooting. The shooting happened on Saturday, and then Thursday, I find myself in the Rose Garden. I find myself in the Oval Office. I find myself giving a talk in front of, later I found out, 42 million people. I'm glad they didn't tell me before I gave the talk. <laughs> and I, this was non-script. I got up in front of the world to share with them what my experience was going through the shooting, but more importantly is what my reaction is and what it ought to be. And we're all asking the question, how do we fix this problem? How do we, how do we get rid of this? Look what just happened in Virginia Beach. Are we getting so insensitized to this? It's, it's becoming the new norm. How do we change this? No one really has the right answer, but I could just reflect that when our president, Ronald Reagan, was shot, Rabbi Schneerson, my Rebbe, was good friends. They were both heads of great, or great people, and they conferred with each other, how can we fix this? And the Rebbe then introduced the concept which perhaps we need to reintroduce to the public school system a moment of silence. We used to have prayer that children would come to school and every morning there'd be prayer. But then in the 50s, that was stopped. And the Rebbe's concept was that perhaps if children at a very young age are introduced to an idea of a moment of silence, that for a moment they would pause and think of what are they created for? What is their mission in life? What ought they to accomplish today? Perhaps children would come home and start asking their parents more intrinsic questions that have far more value than just materialism. So I am trying to accomplish that, to get public schools. There are 22 states that already does that, and we hope to get the rest of the country to reintroduce that to their system. And more than anything, something tangible that we all can do is random acts of goodness and kindness. Every act, not just to talk, but to do, every act of kindness adds light to the world. And don't underestimate your random act of kindness, how powerful it could affect the rest of the world. So remember, a little bit of light can push away a lot of darkness. Thank you very much. I have taught the children of preschool, give me a high four. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, uh, Rabbi Goldstein. Uh, when he speaks about a little bit of light that pushes away the darkness, we're fortunate in our community to have a rabbi that brings a lot of light, a lot of light that pushes away a lot of darkness. And with leaders like Rabbi Goldstein, I have the confidence that we're going to move forward as a society. My name is Steve Dinkin. I'm president of the National Conflict Resolution Center. We are an organization based in San Diego that has focused for many, many years on polarization and on the challenges that we face in our society. We do that through communication skills training, through mediation strategies, and we do that in schools, in colleges, in communities, across society. But on April 27, something changed in our community. Something changed, and from that, we are searching for lessons. With all of our tools, we're still, as an organization, searching for lessons. And that is why we're so fortunate tonight to have four leaders from across this country that have all experienced tragedies, that are here to guide our community to give us a path forward. So we are fortunate over the next hour to have a conversation with our panelists. And while they are speaking, I'm going to ask them a series of questions. You all have cards. Please feel free to write a question on the card if you have. Uh, when you finished, hand it to representatives on the sides and I'll collect them at the end of the night around 7.30 and then we'll have a dialogue for 20, 25 minutes uh, with your questions. So at this point, I'd like to begin by introducing the panelists. I'm going to start with Pardeep. Pardeep Singh Kaleka is of Oak Creek, Wisconsin. He's a published author of The Gifts of Our Wounds and a psychotherapist specialized in utilizing a trauma-informed approach to treat survivors and perpetrators of assault, abuse, and acts of violence. In response to the tragedy at the Sikh Temple of Wisconsin, Pardeep co-founded Serve to Unite, an organization that is internationally recognized for the work of building safe, inclusive communities and schools. Sitting next to Pardeep, Pardeep is Reverend Kylon Middleton. Reverend Middleton is the pastor of Mount Zion Amy Church in South Carolina. We are soaring is his theme and vision as he oversees all ministries leading his congregation to new heights in social justice, racial conciliation, and community outreach initiatives. In the aftermath of the, charge of the tragedy in Charleston, Kylon took the helm of the Illumination Project to foster better police citizen relations. And next to Kylon is Tracy, Reverend Tracy Howe Wispaway of Charlottesville, Virginia. She's the founder of Restoration Village Arts, a learning and action community for artists and theologians working in today's specific and intersecting movements of liberation, including immigration and racial justice. She became involved in organizing faith leaders in solidarity with efforts to take down Confederate monuments in Charlottesville in 2015. Restoration Village Arts facilitated the training of hundreds 
of people in nonviolent action to protest white supremacist gatherings that were planned in the city in 2017. She helped to stage the interfaith service that gathered faith leaders from around the country the night before the infamous Unite the Right rally. And next to Tracy is Joshua Sales. Joshua is a Jewish community uh, civil rights professional and the director of the Community Relations Council of the Jewish Federation of Pittsburgh, long before the attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Last October, Joshua's group was dedicated to building relationships within and beyond the Jewish community. The council's agenda includes advocating for social justice, enlisting government and public support for oppressed communities and promoting the understanding of the Jewish community. Thank you all for coming here this evening. I'm going to begin tonight by asking you each uh, to tell your story. I'm going to start with Pardeep. A mass shooting took place at the Sikh Temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin on August 5th, 2012. Would you share with us in your own words, what happened, and how you were impacted, and how you're moving forward. Uh, good afternoon, good evening, Sashikal. Namaste, salam, shalom. It is an honor to be here and uh, be able to speak amongst distinguished guests. Um, and uh, you know, just an honor for, for you guys to be, or just a, uh, a gift for you guys to be here with us. So thank you for, for being here. Um, my journey in this country began in 1982. Uh, my parents immigrated here from India. My mother was, uh, my mother and father were both farmers. My mother had a fifth grade education. My father had a high school degree. Um, and one of the things that I do when I look back and, and I worked on the book was, I asked my mom, I said, how did it feel when you first came to America? And uh, the one word answer was really um, overwhelmed and everything was just so big. And I, I think about them and I think about really the plight of uh, people who are marginalized and immigrants who are vilified right now. And it is an honor to be able to represent um, so many different people who are being vilified for who, who they are and, uh, and the country that they come to and they wanna make home and how overwhelmed they must feel to go through miles and miles to try to come to a place and to find sanctuary, only to be told that they're not allowed that sanctuary. Um, as my journey in this country uh, unfolded, I became the first one to graduate uh, in my family. And shortly after graduation, I became a police officer. I was policing one of the, uh, the toughest neighborhoods in, in Milwaukee. Um, jokingly, we called it as police officers, we called it Little Beirut. Um, but there's a documentary about it that we can become much more well-informed. It's called 53206. And it talks about the historical uh, oppression that has happened in this community to make this community the way that it is. Oftentimes we think that something just happens and it exists that way that it does. And, and we don't understand the history of how that became that way. So therefore we can't unravel that or or deliberately address it. Um, 
but when I was a police officer, I, I understood all of these things. But I, had, I was naive myself. I, I, I thought that I could keep good people safe by locking up bad folks. And that was really as simple as I thought it was. And over, over five years of policing, the gray became a little bit too much for me to stomach. And therefore, I became an educator in the same neighborhood that I was policing. And I started to work with what the state labeled at-risk high school youth academically, behaviorally, or some combination of both, a bit challenged. Um, and, and the main thing that I did as an educator, I didn't suspend one kid in a matter of 12 years of teaching at this school. And thank you. Thank you. And then the main thing I did was just develop relationships and rapport. And I would try to find out and read the case notes on who this child was, what motivated them, who was in their life, and who wasn't in their life and really what made them tick. So when August 5th happened uh, that summer uh, of, of uh, 2012, it was at that time one of the deadliest hate crimes committed on US soil by an affiliated white supremacist in nearly 50 years. Since the time that the Klan um, bombed a church and killed four little girls, and, and, and even with that, the inspiration for the civil rights movement uh, was in full gear. And we wanted our sacrifice, we, we as six called sacrifice Gurbani, or we call it Shahidi, but we wanted that same sacrifice to mean something to this country. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and it did. Um, within, as that day unfolded, um, we, we were talking a little bit earlier and then since yesterday, we were talking a little bit, and weirdly, we were talking about you guys. And we were talking about our, our dedication to show up when we see human suffering. And, and when we see human suffering, we see something that's not right. Um, that's what happened the day of. And, and Oak Creek is very much a small suburb of Milwaukee. Uh, historically, it's very conservative. Um, but now because of affordability of where it is, the demographic is changing. And when the demographic is changing, there's a lot of angst. There's more Pakistanis moving in. There's more Asians moving in. There's more Indians moving in, Muslims moving in. There's this angst that's happening. And that was definitely true in 2012. This angst was happening, but not enough people were standing up before this happened. And the day that it did happen, I could tell you a lot of stories and, and then uh, of just what happened the day of. Um, but the one story that, that, uh, that sits true, and sits true every time we have an event like this and it sells out within two days, is, is really the continuation to show up. Um, 10 o'clock, the shooting happened. By 10.30, 10.45, there's about 50 people and 50 people who got out of their own churches or places of worship who just show, show up. And then about 11.30, maybe 200, 250. And by 12 o'clock, there's thousands of people of different faces, ethnicities, cultures, religions. They're just showing up. And I look around and I notice that many of them don't know how to communicate with one another. They don't speak the same language. They don't believe though they don't feel like they believe in the same God, but you know, we all believe in the same God. We're just finding different routes there. 
they they just they don't have they don't feel like they have enough in common. But then I start to notice something special. And this 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 the special thing that I noticed was that empathy is a universal language. And people understand sadness. And people understand grief. And people understand how to bear witness to suffering. And they understand that you know, sometimes we think that like when we're going through life, that life is just happening to us. When we're children, we're, we're in this very vulnerable state of life is happening to us. Then as we grow older, we start to, we start to tr transform that to say, no, life is always happening for me. And then we have this other uh, transformation that life is happening through us. And if life is happening through us, and if we're truly the filter that life happens through, then we can turn suffering into something um, much more meaningful and purposeful. And that is exactly what, what people were doing that day. And I thank you because that's exactly what you are doing, continuing going forward. Thank you, Pardeep. Kailan, I, I want to ask you a similar question. On uh, June 17, 2015, there was a mass shooting that took place at Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. I know uh, you were very close uh, with the minister. Uh, could you tell us how you were impacted a little bit, what happened uh, that day? How many of you have best friends in the audience? Best friends that you talk to? multiple times a day, sometimes you call them and you, you don't even have anything to talk about. You just uh, end up you know, kind of making that call and say, well, why did you call me? I don't know. And then you start talking for two hours uh, about something, uh, uh, really about nothing. Uh, Clemente Carlos Pinckney was my very best friend. In fact, we were like brothers. Um, growing up as children, uh, becoming men and adults, his girls are my godchildren. I was there literally in the room when they were born. Our lives were so intertwined one with another, we sharpened each other like iron. Uh, we're both ministers in the AME church, although we didn't pastor at the, at the time in the same place. Uh, we always checked in with one another in our ministries, in our aspirations. Uh, we also you know, kind of dabbled in politics and other areas. So we were always uh, talking about something constructive, meaningful, and then sometimes about nothing at all. And so June 17, 2015, my entire life changed. His wife, who was also uh, in the church at the time of the horrific uh, mass murders on that day, she called me. I was actually pastoring a church about 90 miles away. I was coming out of Bible study myself. And when she called, you know, it was not strange because it was, I expected them to call because they were driving back to Columbia, which would have been over maybe an hour and 30 minutes from Charleston after they left. He was still in, in session in the South Carolina Senate. And so when she said uh, he had been shot, I'm like, I thought she was playing a joke on me. But when she said it the second time, I knew she was very serious. And she said, I need you to, need you to come to Charleston right now. So I drove from Georgetown to Charleston, which would have been a 90 uh, mile trip. Uh, should have taken a little over an hour and something. I think I may have gotten there in like 30 minutes because I was breaking every speed law. How many of you have ever raced to a place when you know that there was danger? And so I was really putting the pedal to the metal to get down to Charleston. And when I did, they did have her and her daughter uh, in the embassy suites along with the other family members of victims, the other survivors. 
and uh, persons who were there from the church. And as soon as I found them, they just grabbed me. And I held her in my chest and the daughter in my side, and I can still feel them pressing into my rib cage in my chest cavity today. They were shaking like leaves. She did not speak. And because she did not speak, I dared not say a word. We sat there in silence, even though there were hundreds of people moving around us, I still did not fully grasp or understand what was going on. And then later, much later in the evening, around 4, uh, 35 a.m. that morning, the coroner called us in as she was calling each family individually into a private room, conference room, where she then declared, you know, that Clemente had been murdered. And from that point, I didn't know what to do except to then try to take Jennifer and her children back to Columbia because her car was now quarantined in the parking lot as a crime scene, so she had no ride back home. And then also in the days to come to help them immediately, you know, with some of the very practical things like the funeral that became an international uh, event because President Obama decided he wanted to be the eulogist for that funeral uh, for Clemente Pinckney. So beyond that, we had to make a decision for ourselves, Jennifer, me personally, and all of us, the survivors, the family members of victims and individuals who were involved in that tragedy, to include the members of the church, uh, as opposed to being individuals who would then be inwardly turned on ourselves and our grief become so paralyzing that we could not even function every day. Many of us decided to become activists and individuals who would decide that hate would not win out of that conflict and, and turning our energies into a pos positive motivating force that then uh, galvanized a momentum that enabled us uh, to take back our communities, to take back our church, to take back our uh, ability to freely worship after a white supremac supremacist entered not only the Emmanuel space, but all AME churches at that time. Uh, and all churches, black churches in Charleston at that time were, were extremely fearful, frightened, and, and certainly uh, skeptical uh, as to uh, entering those sacred doors, not now realizing that they were not as sacred as we thought. And so my life continued to uh, emerge and evolve because I didn't wake up to be the poster person for any movement and or uh, any um, uh, mission you know, of this sort, but I just am determined that we should live in a world filled with peace and justice. I woke up determined each day that we should uh, live in a society where people give one another the benefit of the doubt and recognize that we're all human beings. I wake up every day determined that somewhere, somehow, we should all be able to just love one another and get along. And I'm naive in that sense, but I still believe it. And it doesn't matter if we're wh white, black, um, or what our ethnic backgrounds may be. It doesn't matter what our, what our religious affiliations, what our sexual orientations, what our socioeconomic uh, status and or our educational attainment level. We are all people. And because of that and through this tragedy, I've learned that we should be sensitive to the fact that we should take the time to just sit, talk to one another, learn more about one another, and recognize just as Pardeep uh, just said, that we can empathize through our sufferings in order to put ourselves in the shoes of someone else, because as I asked you the question and just about every hand in the room went up, we all share experiences that unite us and not divide us. Thank you.
Thank you, Reverend, for your words of wisdom. Another story, August 12, 2017, Charlottesville, Virginia. When I spoke to Tracy, she explained how uh, a vehicle plowed into a group of anti-demonstrators, uh, demonst and uh, she said that somehow the story in Charlottesville was different, because you knew of this event long before it actually occurred. Could you explain a little bit about what you meant by that and, and how it's impacted you individually? Sure. Uh, first, thank you so much for this invitation. Um, and I wish life and living comfort uh, to all you gathered here and in the greater community. Um, I want you to know the name of Zyanna Bryant. Zyanna uh, was at the time a young high school student, a young black girl um, who grew up in Charlottesville. In 10th grade, Zyanna wrote an open letter talking about the public spaces in Charlottesville and how she didn't feel um, safe or welcome in the center, um, the center parks and squares where there were um, standing these giant white supremacist monuments. And the history of the parks are, are founded, and you can read in the original charters, um, they were designated as, as white space. Um, black tenements had been raised, in fact, to create this space. And her uh, bravery and her boldness as well as other young people and young people of color and uh, queer folks and anti-fascists um, were dedicated uh, to this latest iteration of tearing down these um, white supremacist monuments. And there was a, a lot of debate and people who had access to power and privilege and who were not connected and did not have um, uh, a, um, they were not impacted by the living history of these things would um, come very practically and say, well, we could, you know, spend this much money to tear down a monument or we could, um, you know, build this many units of affordable housing. And as a person of faith, um, my response is, um, we can do both. We need to um, expand our imagination, our generosity, and recognize that many things that we're dealing with today um, are operating at uh, an interpersonal and a systemic and a cultural, symbolic, ideological level. So Zyanna began this uh, latest iteration of a movement in the city where I was living at the time with my family. Um, and uh, I was a pastor um, working with university students at the University of Virginia and interfaith justice issues uh, in the city. And Diana helped teach a lot of us how to show up together as a community. What I talked to Steve about was um, after a year of this movement, uh, there began to be some kind of um, national uh, national attention, but also local backlash. You know, two of the main organizers of the Unite the Right rally are UVA alum. Uh, and um, there was a uh, 
there was a flash mob torchlit rally uh, in May of 2017 that conjured um, and evoked all the trauma of histories. This image of young men carrying torches gathered around a white supremacist monument uh, shook a lot of people. But for those of us in Charlottesville who knew some of these people who are gathered, who saw what was happening, and um, courageous activists who uh, were following the most dangerous people and groups, um, we saw what was unfolding, and a series of gatherings was, was planned for that summer, which we um, started to call the Summer of Hate. And as someone who had been called into circles of public witness before, at Ferguson, at Standing Rock in, in Latin America, and who had shown up um, in embodied solidarity on behalf of community elsewhere, now saw unfolding in my own hometown something. Um, and the, the thing that I knew is that we needed help and we needed people to stand with us as people of faith and conscience. And my husband, the Reverend Seth Whispleway, and my colleague, the Reverend Brittany Kane Conley, um, started organizing uh, and formed um, a mechanism for pastoral response to community trauma they called Congregate. And through that summer, we trained hundreds of people in nonviolent direct action um, uh, with the help of our dear brother, Reverend Osaji Fuseku, uh, who was trained at the Highlander Center um, in nonviolent direct action. And as we prepared and the information kept rolling in, we went and we met with city officials saying, "This we know what's going to happen. This is going to be a violent gathering. The intention is violence. The intention is death. It's, uh, we, we knew what was unfolding. And I, I don't know that any of the media has really successfully conveyed that part of the story, that we actually went to people and said, this will be a Selma moment. Um, people of my generation um, who watch and younger watch the movie Selma uh, and everyone imagines they would be there on the bridge. And in fact, most of us would not be. Uh, and so we had the opportunity to have this conversation ahead of time and we saw um, much of uh, this, the same kind of um, dynamics that people in the civil rights movement dealt with. Um, the majority of people did not work, did not want to show up. We were accused of inciting violence. Um, we had um, we had African American pastors who were some of the most outspoken against doing anything, and then we had um, white leaders of faith who didn't know where they stood at all, and had the option to just opt out. We made a plea, especially for white cis hetero men to come and to stand because of this specific kind of violence and the vulnerabilities of bodies um, that many people, you know, uh, just the reality of, of what it would be to be out that day. All of this was going on and we knew to the point um, community where uh, at one point um, Rev Seku goes, you know, I, I I know what it looks like to stage nonviolent direct action um, and deal with the violence of the state and those kinds of things, but I don't know what to do when navigating multiple armed actors. 
because we knew the militia would be there. We knew that the white supremacists would come armed. Um, there were people in the community who wanted to come armed and we were committed to radical nonviolence and knowing that that makes no sense if you, um, if you don't come from a framework of this. And what were we to do? And so we, we brought in some of our dear uh, leaders from um, places who had been in war-torn areas essentially to help us prepare to be out in public witness to be demonstrating a story that would reject such violence and white supremacy. And yet we all knew the full cost. Everybody who was out there on the line that you saw pictures of that was standing with Congregate absolutely knew the stakes. And so we mourn, but we were not surprised when there was an actual terrorist attack. Um, moving forward, you know, and we'll continue to talk more about this, what we have learned and, and how we are healing, healing um, in some levels of individual trauma. You know, there has been a lot of resources and outpouring for individuals. But when you talk about community collective healing, that's never going to happen outside of uh, sustaining justice. And I am, uh, I am, I lament that we have been brought together. Um, you know, tragedy unites all of our stories but so does white supremacy. And so um, learning to uh, come together and know how deep this um, white supremacy is not just Nazis marching in Charlottesville, um, but that which uh, sustains access and privilege of access to privilege and power by a few um, in inequitable and destructive and violent ways. We are learning, despite the fact that um, we still don't have justice in Charlottesville. The monuments are still up. People that planned the rally are still walking around. Some of the white supremacists continue to terrorize um, anti-racist activists and community members. Uh, we've had um, people arrested and prosecuted for at, at uh, parent-teacher <laughs> meetings with the, board, with the school boards. It's, it's not resolved. And yet, uh, we are learning together, both those of us who showed up and those of us who had a conversion experience, witnessing what unfolded, are learning to show up in more courageous ways with one another, for one another, on behalf of one another, so that we might all find our way to freedom. Thank you, Tracy. Two thousand twelve, two thousand fifteen, two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen, October twenty seventh, two thousand eighteen. There was a mass shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Uh, Joshua, uh, tell us about that experience and and what it meant to you. Sure. Um, One of the, the messages that, that have been spreading far and wide is, you know, 36 hours after the shooting, as soon as I had a moment to process, was that, you know, that shooting happened to, to, to have targeted the Jewish community in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh. But all you have to do uh, to know that this could have happened to any one of our diverse communities anywhere is to look at the people on this panel. 
And if you want to go beyond the panel, you can look at an LGBTQ nightclub in Orlando. You can look at a church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Uh, you can look at the mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. You can look to the bombings in Sri Lanka the other month. The list, you, you can look to, of course, Chabad of Poway, and the, the list goes, goes on and on. But I also want to make a distinction that we are sitting here specifically because of an act of anti-Semitism, that we're sitting in this room together because a white supremacist gunman targeted Chabad of Poway, a Jewish institution, and killed one person and wounded several others, and I'm sitting on this panel here. I flew into San Diego because in Pittsburgh, 11 people were killed by an extremist violent gunman, 11 Jewish people. Two Jewish people were wounded by a gunman. And four law enforcement officers were wounded for protecting the lives of Jewish people. And I just want to place an emphasis that when we, when we, when we talk about uh, racism, when we talk about standing together uh, and the importance of community, uh, to, to place a distinction uh, that anti-Semitism is, 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 a, is a distinctly different, not better or worse, but different kind of, of, of racism um, that has manifested itself in hundreds of ways for thousands of years. Um, I have a difficult time talking about the day of, of October 27th um, because it's still such a whirlwind to me that while I can recount the events, it, so much of it is still such a blur. Uh, I can tell you that the shooting took place uh, about 9.45 in the morning and my phone rang from a community member on Shabbat at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm not particularly religious, uh, but I don't work on Shabbat. It's the only 24 hours I have off during the week and I saw who was calling and I chose not to answer the phone. And when two minutes later they called back again, I picked up the phone and they said, there's been a shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue building in Squirrel Hill. And I hung up the phone and I called the CEO of the Jewish Federation and he said, I'm in my car. I'm about a block away from the Tree of Life. I'm on the corner. The shooter's still in the building. And he said, our director of community security, who I believe was out at his vacation home, maybe an hour and 15 minutes outside of Pittsburgh, who was former FBI for 29 years, uh, before he, he took the position with us a couple of years ago, uh, was doing about, to your point, 110 miles an hour down the parkway coming, coming back to Pittsburgh. The next phone call was from Senator Bob Casey's office, uh, who said the senator is already in southwestern Pennsylvania today. He's on his way. What do you know? What can you tell us? And at that point, it wasn't much. And when I hung up the phone, uh, with Senator Casey's office, I knew that I needed to get dressed and go down to the scene. And when I got down to the scene, um, the police barricades were there, and the first thing I will forget is as I was trying to negotiate with the police to get inside the, the barrier, the perimeter that they had set up, was um, seeing the SWAT team, which uh, was no longer in action, but they were going back to their vehicles, and it was just one after another, after another, after another in a line. And, and, and I couldn't tell you if it was eight or, or, or 12 or 20 of them. I just couldn't believe the number of heavily armed officers that were walking by. Um, and so we walked in and we started, you know, 
found leadership in the Jewish community and found um, you know every major politician from 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 city council to the statewide to the governor and senators. Almost all of them happened to be in Western Pennsylvania that day, so they were all on the scene. So I was talking to them about what do we do next, and watching the media, and watching uh, after one of the media members gave the first report, he happened to be Jewish, just seeing him break down in tears. Talking again to our Jewish communal security director, who was uh, FBI for 29 years, saying it was the worst crime scene he'd ever seen. About one, uh, but there's always a silver lining. There's always a silver lining. And the silver lining, as you were talking about, was people who show up for each other. And as we were standing on that scene, uh, the first person who I saw who was not a politician and not a Jewish and not a member of the Jewish community uh, was my friend Wasi, who was the executive director of the Islamic Center, who just walked through the scene. And to this day, I give him a hard time. How did you get past the police barrier? Um, <laughs> but he showed up. And so did a leader in the Hispanic community. And they were walking side by side and we said, Why, what, what, are you, what are you doing here? And he said, we had to be here. We had to be here. And so that was Saturday and on Sunday we held the vigil in the evening, the community gathering, and we had a venue of 3,000 people and the place was packed. There was not a seat in the house. And I've heard different numbers, but I've heard as many as 1,000 or another 1,500 people gathered outside of the venue. And at the end of the vigil, there was a call for all of the clergy to come up on the stage. And I couldn't tell you how many there were, but there were hundreds standing with us. And that's how the week continued. Um, Monday evening, there was a, a press conference put on for us by, by some African-American clergy leadership. And they stood around, and they stood with us in a showing of solidarity. And this went down the line until Friday, right before Shabbat, the Bhutanese immigrant community, a small community in Pittsburgh, growing community in Pittsburgh, but a small community in Pittsburgh. And I stood in a park on a cold, rainy evening at about five o'clock in, uh, in, in, in a suburb and spoke to about 300 people. And people, the Bhutanese community were coming up to me, hugging me, shaking my hand, and I realized that these maybe 20% of the people there wanted, they couldn't even speak English. They just wanted to be there to show their support. They had no idea what was being said. And we wrapped up, we went to Shabbat services in our synagogues, almost every synagogue uh, in Pittsburgh was, was, was double, triple the capacity of what it usually is on the high holidays. And the synagogue that I walked into, again, was just filled with a diverse room of clergy, um, you know, uh, whether it was the Muslim community, the African-American community, the Hispanic community, the, the Christian community, uh, the left-wing Christian community, the right-wing Christian community, you name it, everybody was there. Everybody was there. And it was really in that week um, that, that I, 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 I don't want to say I learned, but I really fully understood um, the power of showing up. The power of showing up. And, 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 I can speak almost to a person, I think, for the Jewish community in Pittsburgh, which is 50,000, which is the outpouring of support that the Jewish community in Pittsburgh now has uh, whenever, there, whenever there is a tragedy in our area, whether you're talking about the shooting in Christchurch or the bombing in Sri Lanka. We, we understand fundamentally what it means to show up 
And even if there's nothing else um, that we can do in that moment, um, to quote the rabbi, to just, to just be that little bit of light. Joshua, you talk about the importance of showing up, and as a community tonight, uh, we have showed up, and we're going to continue to show up. And as I think about it, how do you really define what a leader is? And if you think about a leader, it's a leader who, an individual who can stand up when there is darkness and to create change, to go outward to bring people together to move forward. And each of these leaders in their own communities have created actions, have done things to move their communities forward. And I wanna just take a moment to hear just a little bit about what you're currently doing to move your community forward. And beginning with Pardeep, I, I know you've created an organization co-founded with a white supremacist gentleman Called former, Serve white supremacist, to former white supremacist. Yes, former. So, tell us a little bit about what what that's all about. Um, sure. Uh, yeah, he would he would get upset if you said white supremacist. Former. Yes. But um, so our organization is called Serve to Unite, and it was co-founded shortly after the shooting. Uh, it was co-founded by the youth, and and when I say youth, I'm talking about maybe the 20, 30, 40 year olds within the temple who said that we're not gonna wait for solutions and people to come to us, but we're gonna be the solution that goes out to the broader community. And so they realized that you know, sometimes within the diaspora of becoming, uh, you know, just being American and being from India and being sick, um, sometimes we self-segregate ourselves into those that we feel comfortable around, those that speak our same language, look like us, talk like us, walk like us, and uh, we realized that we needed to do more to be part of the broader society and uh, the broader culture. So Surf Tonight was really founded upon them. And then um, my father, my father, uh, he was a temple president for 15 years. He was 65, year old, 65 year old, years old when he passed. He passed with a butter knife in his hand fighting a white supremacist gunman. And so one of the... Um, you know, the exit door was really about 10 feet away from where he took his last breath. He could have left at any time, but he realized that his congregation was in there, my mom was in there, my mom, had, she has survived, um, and she's doing well. But, you know, one of the things that the NRA first came out and told me afterwards when we were taking on gun legislation and things like this was, don't you wish your father had a gun in his hand? No condolences, no anything like that. Just don't you, wouldn't you want your dad to have a gun in his hand to make it a fair fight? And I said, listen, it's never been a fair fight. We've not been used to fair fights. We, we believe in this thing called hook'em, which is God's will. And I told him, I said, my dad, was, my dad died the way that he was supposed to die. And he built what he was supposed to build. He died in the place that he helped build for people that he helped build it for. There's no better death that a sick can die than to die for something bigger than himself. That's a martyr's death, and he will live on. And it is in the same light that we say, you know what, Serve Tonight was founded really in that courage 
of what do we do now? And so two months after the shooting happened, I reached out to the same person who started the organization that the shooter belonged to. I'm not going to glamorize the, the, the organization that the shooter belonged to, but Arnold founded that organization because with the death of that shooter went the explanation. I really needed to know why, and I needed to know why from authentic sources. I wanted to know what drives this behavior, and uh, it's hatred, it's suffering, it's division, it's the longing for division. And division is such that sometimes it's too light to feel until it becomes too heavy to be broken or carried. And that, that's really what Serve Tonight was about. Now, I mean, it, maybe it's like a, a, an organization, a real organization, but really, uh, after the shooting, it was a call to action. It was a call to spirituality. And we have had different forms of revolution within society. We've had the Industrial Revolution. We've had, you know, some, somewhat of a civil rights revolution. Still, we, we got a lot of work to do with that. But I think the next big revolution that's going to happen is going to be a spiritual revolution. And when we think about places of prayer being targeted, this is going to be the catalyst that launches that spiritual revolution. Kailan, uh, the National Conflict Resolution Center does a lot of work in San Diego with police citizen relations, but you are doing something very special uh, with the Illumination Project in Charleston. Can you talk a little bit about that? How many of you have, how many of you have ever ridden in a police car? Yeah, was that in the front seat or the back seat? <laughs> I always have to start with that because it was a police officer. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've ridden in, the, in a police car doing ride-alongs uh, after I took over the Illumination Project. And certainly, um, as a black person in America, you know, I've always been skeptical of the police and I've really been afraid of them. And in the 90s, uh, Susan Smith, uh, a white woman uh, who claimed that a black man abducted her children carjacked her car and um, stole them uh, as she was in a convenience store or a gas station uh, paying for her gas, which then incited a statewide manhunt. I was in Columbia, South Carolina at the time, student in seminary nonetheless, and I was coming out of the local Piggly Wiggly. You all don't have Piggly Wigglies over here? <laughs> I was coming out of, which is a grocery store, right? I was coming out of the local Piggly Wiggly with my bags in hand, and I'm walking back to my dorm room, and I was stopped by the Columbia police officers, and they had me face down. Uh, on Main Street in Columbia, uh, giving no explanation. I had no idea, you know, at that point, because this thing had just happened, so I had not seen news or anything. Uh, and so I was, you know, said that I fit the uh, description of the assailant, and, uh, you know, here I am, a seminarian, and I'm dressed, uh, you know, respectably and coming out with groceries, so I don't think I, and I didn't even have a car, so I was not necessarily uh, one who uh, had something that could even uh, mirror uh, what she said. So um, when the tragedy occurred in 2015 and Jennifer and Milana, her daughter, were pressed in my chest cavity and rib cage, and we sat in silence for hours, one thing I did remember and notice was the fact that the police department, the police chief himself at the time, he's now retired, uh, Greg Mullen, personally came around to each individual family came around to each survivor 
and was checking in throughout the night. You know, now that I look, I, in retrospect, looking in his eyes, I almost could see that he already knew uh, what the coroner would tell us, but he was so compassionate and so gentle and so caring. And for the first time, and you know, not in that moment, but as uh, the weeks and months progressed, I, I started seeing police officers differently. I started seeing them as police and as human beings. Before, I don't know if I, I saw them as Martians or aliens, but I did not necessarily identify uh, readily with police officers in a very uh, human way, in a very relatable way, because I saw it was an us versus them uh, kind of thing, particularly being uh, from black communities in Charleston where we were you know, targeted uh, by the police uh, when I was growing up. Uh, and so certainly that was one of my uh, early experiences. And so it was a struggle for me uh, when Greg Mullen asked me if I would then you know, come with him and sign on board you know, because he was looking for survivors and family members uh, to help do something to strengthen and unite the community uh, in the aftermath of this tragedy. And he then dreamt up this illumination project and decided that this was a way to build trust and legitimacy and shape uh, and strengthen these relationships, uh, particularly between uh, the citizens and the people uh, in the community that they served. And so I thought that that was worthy enough because I believed in him. I, I believed in him as one police officer. And then subsequently, as we started having listening sessions, as we started having opportunities where we were, and in our listening sessions, uh, Steve, we actually had a trained facilitator. We had a police officer at every table along with citizens. And so wherever there was a nexus, particularly those uh, conversations that were police involved and or related, like the Walter Scott incident, which happened in North Carolina, North Charleston, where Walter Scott shot, uh, um, where Walter Scott was shot uh, by a uh, police officer from North Charleston, you know, it was helpful to have the perspective of police at the table when we were asking tough questions like how, why, who, you know, and they were able to kind of filter some things and give us a deeper understanding as to behind the scenes uh, as to how such breakdown and systemic uh, issues can occur because everybody lied. You know, uh, the officer lied, the other officers on the scenes, scene lied, and had there not been this video that was taken by just a passerby or a general citizen, we would have never known the truth. And so that gave me pause when he asked me to uh, participate, but then I decided for the good of our community, based on the momentum that we had, we were trying to do some uh, big uh, things in our community, some uh, major good, and so I saw that as an opportunity. Well, when I took over the, Illum <laughs> the Illumination Project, I had to look back and laugh at myself because I said to myself, you know, here I am, someone who is highly skeptical, uh, now leading this project. But um, bringing those from vulnerable communities, individuals who normally would not be in the room, those who were often on the other end of the handcuffs, um, now coming and sitting down, finding uh, methods, ways, and interventions that we could partner together to make our community safe and safer. And being individuals, when they see something, they say something. Being individuals who, uh, you know, would not being, being informants of the police, but being individuals who would help police officers, particularly in major cases, in cases that uh, would have gone unsolved uh, in our communities if citizens did not participate. And so the Illumination Project continues. This is the fourth year <clears throat> after the tragedy, so each year of the tragedy also marks the uh, inception and the work of the Illumination Project, and we, we are going extremely strong. 
in the sense that we continue uh, community engagement activities and efforts to help minimize, mitigate, and to uh, strengthen those uh, relationships in our community where there were individuals who were being stopped because we had this pretext um, profiling question, you know, are the police officers profiling driving while black? And the police officers would say, well, no, we can't even see who we're stopping except the fact that there were, you know, these communities were all black. So, I mean, I, w I would imagine that you would be stopping everybody and you had so many of them in these, these communities and you had none of them in these affluent, wealthy communities. So tell me, you know, if the skew uh, was not, uh, you know, toward targeting in that regard. And so sometimes they would be stopping people as in a pretext with the Walter Scott incident for a busted taillight. And that busted taillight would then turn, in, turn into a reasonable suspicion for the officer to then search or you know, whatever. It would go into a, a more uh, tragic outcome. Well, in this case, we then started having programs where individuals who would receive tickets for things as minor as a busted taillight, they would be able to take their cars to the police um, maintenance shop and uh, we had uh, a pro we have a program where they would be able to get those things resolved right there and when they came to court all they uh, had to do was present the uh, certificate from the maintenance shop that they had that uh, corrected and it would go away so it, it, it gave confidence uh, to um, to citizens it gave uh, legitimacy you know to officers in their work and the justice that they were trying to serve and protect our citizens in the community, and it continues to uh, at least build um, an atmosphere of trust where when big issues happen, uh, we at least have the foundational things where we are able to work together. Uh, Reverend, let, let us uh, share these lessons between Charleston and, and San Diego. Let us move forward with that. And uh, Tracy, you're a theologian, and a musician, so it's clear uh, your project, Restoration Village Arts, is an appropriate project that you've been working on, taking leadership role in that uh, in Charlottesville. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, sure, Steve, when you say moving the community forward, my first response is um, it's, the, it's the same people that have been pushing and holding and working and struggling for years and generations. Um, just the perseverance and courage of some of the young people in our community, young people of, of color, um, and people who are now and continually targeted um, by white supremacists and by um, our criminal justice system. Uh, uh, it, it's just astounding, and so I don't you know, I, I am trying to grow in my um, embodied solidarity, um, but certainly I'm still learning and growing. And so my what resonates a little bit uh, more deeply for me is how, um, how are we cultivating our humanity in the aftermath and the continued state of um, injustice or where... Um, where justice and repair are elusive. And uh, I think for, for me personally, certainly, um, I have um, continued to see the power and the transformative properties of art and beauty. Um, you know, when we talk about justice, 
building, it's important to talk about what we mean by that because um, in the machination of our, uh, of our state right now, um, justice is very punitive. Um, it, it's okay with dehumanizing suffering. Um, and so we need, to, we need to kind of nuance what we mean. And, and I, as a person of faith, who am interested in, um, in a sustaining justice that bears the fruit of a living spirit of life that I think we can objectively identify, you know, peace, gentleness, patience, justice, beauty. And so I think that beauty can be both the fruit of and a catalyst for the world we're seeking to build. So a lot of songs, you know, I, I uh, toured full time as a songwriter for 10 years um, and uh, worked in advocacy and um, uh, community building and really as a, as a person of faith was really, I think, just searching for something real, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, if there is this thing that exists, this hope that's true, um, this, um, this uh, transformational love, we should be able to find it in uh, the depths of darkness and the aftermath of violence and trauma. Um, and uh, having the, the gospels to kind of draw from, um, perhaps it was my lack of formation, but I took it quite literally to go to prisons um, and took it quite literally, you know, to just kind of find myself um, in these places of where there was both great need for hope and the objective fruits of this power, transfer, powerful, transforming love. Uh, so certainly music born in the aftermath, I hope, you know, is, I, it's my hope that we as people of um, perhaps uh, conscience and justice and beauty loving people might pilgrimage to one another's community and, tell, and say, tell me, how life and justice are moving here and sing me your songs, you know. I feel some responsibility as an artist to, to document what's happening in these days. Um, as someone who uh, is, a, is a faith leader, I, I, I think about things, how do we write it into our liturgy that is the prayers and um, the gatherings of our faith communities. Thank you, Tracy. Yes. Uh, Josh, uh, you run the Jewish Community Relations Council in, in Pittsburgh, and uh, when we talked on the phone the other night, uh, you mentioned that you're actually raising funds for a mosque in New Zealand. Uh, the Jewish Council, uh, that's, that's so interesting to me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so our, our Community Relations Council, we are, you know, we serve as the liaison from the organized Jewish community to all of the other communities in Pittsburgh. So uh, faith communities, ethnic communities, uh, government relations, um, really any, right, the, 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 the mission of our organization is to create a thriving, vibrant, engaged Jewish community in Pittsburgh and Israel and around the world. So you know, any, you know, so there's liaisonship to, to other places that you may not necessarily think. Pittsburgh Public Schools, right? If you want to have a thriving community anywhere, you need a strong public school system. Um, I mean, the, the, the funds are raised um, for, for, for the mosque, and, and it, was, it was really a no-brainer. Um, the, the Muslim community nationally for us, in the wake of the shooting of the Tree of Life uh, synagogue building, 
showed up um, with about $240,000 in a few weeks. And the, 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 the day that I think, uh, the day of, of, of the shooting in, in, in Christchurch, New Zealand at the mosques, um, that morning when, when we got the news, um, that's been post-October 27th, post the shooting on October 27th, that's the worst day I've had. Uh, as a professional, as a person, just that, that feeling, once again, of going back into the office and knowing, you, knowing what it feels like to be a faith community that's targeted by gun violence. And um, knowing what the Muslim community in Pittsburgh and around the world must feel like. And, and going into the office early that morning and talking with our crisis management team and saying, what can we do? And opening an emergency box, an emergency fundraising box, was, was it, it, it was just, it, it, it was no brainer. Of course we would do that. And I remember thinking when we, when we opened it, okay, this is gonna be for the Jewish community in Pittsburgh. It will be a gesture of our goodwill. I hope we can get $20,000 in here in, in a week and, and it will be a demonstration that we stand with the Muslim community. We had $20,000 in six hours. Uh, and, and ended up, there's now over $600,000 in that fund. And it wasn't just the Pittsburgh community. It wasn't just the Pittsburgh Jewish community. It turned out that because of the relationship that we have with the Muslim community in Pittsburgh and because of what they did for us, that the world turned to the, to, to the Jewish community in Pittsburgh looking for a place to support the Muslim community in New Zealand. And uh, there weren't that many funds open, but ours were, was, and we had donors when it was all said and done from 50 state, all 50 states and 10 countries. And so, you know, those are the relationships that, that, you know, those relationships don't happen overnight. You know, those relationships happen because we, we've been cultivating them, them for, for years and, and, and we'll continue to cultivate them because it's important to have and, and important to, to stand with the community. Thank you. I know that uh, some folks are collecting cards, so I want to take a moment, open up to the audience, uh, see if there's any questions. So uh, if you'd like to uh, bring me the cards, I can ask a few of the questions. As you're uh, collecting those, I, I want to uh, ask, with, with your experience, uh, what lessons can you bring to us in San Diego? Uh, is there a lesson that, uh, from your own experience in terms of moving forward as a community that, uh, that we can learn from as we find and search for a path forward in our own community in San Diego? Uh, anyone could answer that? I think uh, just to echo the words of the rabbi, just the reaction has to be so much more overwhelming than the action. And it's, it's all of our responsibility to have, uh, to play a role in that reaction because the next suffering isolated person who is watching at home and trying and, and saying, you know what, I can instill misery to this, to whomever. Uh, I can instill division because I feel divided myself, um, is looking for the reaction. They're not gonna want a community to come together after this, they're not going to want a community to uh, to be stronger. In our uh, in Sikhi, we, we have this saying, "Nanak nam chardi kala tere bane sarbatta pala," and what that basically means is, 
for the peace and prosperity of all mankind, we shall be relentlessly optimistic that, that solutions. Yeah, so that's. Um, thank you. Uh, it is, um, I guess, an encouragement to live in truth um, and to remind us we need uh, community and support because the truth is white supremacy will kill us all. Uh, it's doing it to people with black and brown and um, non-gender conforming bodies much more quickly, but it will ultimately destroy everything. Um, and uh, in terms of what I've learned in Charlottesville, it is that there are people who have been suffering the impacts of um, the machinations, the death-dealing machinations of, of racism and violence for years and generations. And I guarantee you, you have courageous leaders in this city who are at work and who have been at work. And so my encouragement moving forward is if you're not already walking in the streets and embodying solidarity with people different from you and divesting from the things that uh, inequitably um, give power and privilege at the expense of exploitation and oppression of others. If you're not already doing that, there's opportunity to do it here in San Diego. I'm sure of that. Thank you. Uh, here's a question. Uh, the question asks, uh, we talk about showing up, but how do we show up in the long term? How do we create a sense of sustainability for all of our efforts? You have to keep showing up. <laughs> As an individual, you have to develop an internal determination that I am going to be vested in this for the long haul. It can't be a passing fad. It can't be something that you're just doing um, you know, as something to do. This has to be uh, something that motivates you, something that continues to stir you know, whatever those passions that are within you to make certain that you can see. You know, it's change is a very slow process. Some of these things that we are talking about, particularly trying to create a beloved community or a community where fairness, justice, equity, equality uh, are the order of the day and not the exception, that will take a long time. <laughs> but it takes each of us every day. You have to go back to all of those who are within your spheres of uh, influence and begin talking with them. Certainly, you know, more people should have been at this, and we applaud those who are here tonight. Uh, but those, these are probably they that show up to everything, you know, every time these type things are offered. And so where are those individuals who uh, are in the fringes, who don't normally come? You can go. <laughs> you know those people. They're in your families. They're in your homes. And so you then have to become the ambassador that takes the message back and begin using these strategies learned in these um, experiences in your everyday life. So it has to that now become a lifestyle. It has to become a way that uh, you you operate. You know, from from your interactions at work to your uh, even where you go to church. If everybody in my church looks the same, or my synagogue looks looks the same, or my mosque looks the same, or my temple looks the same, then I need to start thinking about what about the church next door or down the street? 
uh, and how does that church look? And then I'm just going to show up there. And then if every uh, head turn, you know, because, you know, you're the only one who looks like you, then still be comfortable with that and remain and then stick around and let them ask you questions and begin breaking down those barriers. So we have to become vested for the long haul and then create others, or not create, but, but bring along others like us, you know, who are also deputized for the long haul so that they can then go and get other people and penetrate those layers of individuals who are in the third, fourth, and tenth tiers that never would come to these type things, and even they are enlightened, influenced, and create mindsets that shift, uh, that make our world a better place. And it will... And in some cases, it will take money. It may not take a lot of money, but sometimes it will take money because at some uh, of these efforts, you have to feed people. Because if they're coming from places and they're coming directly from work, in some places, we need to have childcare because individuals who would would wanted to be here tonight had children and homework and whatever. And so we may have to think about, now my son is 22 years old, so I don't think that way anymore, but we have to be intentional about thinking about getting those who are still actively raising families and finding ways that we can include them too that they don't have uh, because they want to be engaged, but then when they have to make a decision based on you know their childcare, their feeding their family, making dinner, and that sort of thing, we can, we can eliminate all of that by having those things present even in our spaces. So, up here, you don't, see, you don't see motivational speakers. You don't see Les Brown or Tony Robbins. What you see is you see commitment speakers. And, and that, this is a commitment. Um, one of, one of the lessons that I take off from that day is just the power of prayer and the power of purposeful prayer. Um, when we were across the street at what they call the command post, and, uh, you know, every sh one of these shootings has a command post. When we were across the street, there was a young, young girl, and she had seen my dad and, seen his, and heard his last breath and his last words. And I asked her what they were, and she said, Vahegru. He said, Vahegru. Vahegru is a, is, a, is a call for prayer but it is also a call for connection. And it is, it is connecting with whatever is outside of you, the divine, and whatever is inside of you. And we believe God to be omnipresent, omnipotent, and everywhere. We, we know that it exists, and we want to become one, not just with the person outside of us, but first and foremost, become one with ourselves. Therefore, we can become one with those that are outside of us. And I know, knew at that time that the, everybody had said that same prayer. I know that when, when people take their final breaths, they say that same prayer. And it is the most purpose. It's not a prayer to be like, well, you know, I, like, I hope that I get this uh, house and I can close on it. It is a, I mean, that's a, that's a big prayer too, but <laughs> this is the most purposeful of prayers. And really, we are, we are the answer to their prayers. You know, you, you might have been like, well, you know what, my friend so-and-so invited me to this and this. Steve might have told you to da-da-da-da-da. You know, um, you would think that some, there's some kind of happenstance reason that you showed up here. You showed up here because you're the answer to dying people's prayers. So when you think about not showing up to something, think about that. Uh, I have a really practical thing as you enter 
the struggle or sustain the struggle. Um, I live with a degenerative uh, illness. Um, and so physical embodiment in spaces is absolutely critical. And yet the physiological toll of trauma is devastating. So take care of your body. Deal with the trauma um, that is just critical. Uh, and then the reason that I stay in it is because um, you witness the community and the life born of it. And having um, my conscience raised, having witnessed that, now I can't settle for something less than, than life and working towards that which brings and protects and sustains life in community. So I'm, I'm going to say a couple of things that I think are, are going to sound obvious, but I think they're worth saying. And, and one is you, you, you can't show up in the long term if you don't show up in the short term first. You can't run a marathon without running a mile or a 5K first. So start there. Uh, the second is uh, that really we need to find the commonalities amongst ourselves and start there. But that's not just, you know, the commonalities between people who don't look like us or people who don't pray like us. It's also among people who don't think like us. I think, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use gun violence prevention as an example, but I, I, I could use anything. Um, you want to have a debate about gun violence prevention? Great. Do you want to rid the world of guns? Okay. Do you think everybody should own a semi- automatic and automatic weapon to protect themselves? Okay, I think I know where most of the people in this room stand. But I will say this, that no matter where you stand on that issue, that nobody, nobody wants to see what happened at Chabad of Poway happen again. So whenever you're diving into those conversations, remember that. Uh, each of you have had a, a different time uh, experience of reflection. And uh, looking back on the experience in the aftermath of the various tragedies, is there anything that uh, you would do differently uh, in your leadership, uh, moving the, the, the community forward? Is there anything different that you would see as the, for the community uh, to move forward? Some questions, huh? Someone who asked that? That's a good. That's a good one. I think um, just to echo what we what we kind of said earlier, um, you know, it's tough to it's tough to have a good answer for that because you're you're muddling through it as you're muddling through your own mess and you're muddling through your own life. Um, I probably would have took a little bit more time to grieve initially, um, and I, I remember showing up to things and just being very resentful but sort of, sort of faking my way through things originally because there was this, you know, I was former law enforcement and uh, it, took, it took about 12 hours for notifications to happen. It took a long time for police to get into the, the building. Um, there was some resentment in me to say, if this was a different community, would they have gone in quicker? Would this community have been a priority? Did there was uh, 
law enforcement did not know the place because they had never been inside this place before the shooting happened. So they sent a robot in there. But a robot can't do um, what a paramedic can do. So some people bled out. I, I knew the details of exactly what was going on from people inside and from children's side. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of, in the aftermath, people who were patting themselves on the back when I knew in my heart of hearts that they probably shouldn't have been. And uh, I think, I, I think that, that was a par part of me that didn't grieve, was angry, um, but was also very mission-oriented. And I think that my, my family sort of struggled and um, struggled because of that. And then that's, when I reached out to Arno, it was really a way of me selfishly reclaiming my life as well. And so, uh, you know, our brotherhood really transcends family. Um, you know, I, I called him one day a year after, after we met, and I, and I told him, I said, thank you, bro. And, and this was on a random Sunday. And he's like, for what? I said, this, you know, this entire time, you have accepted accountability. You have been there. You've raised your hand. You walked with me. And you've honestly been my therapist. So that's probably one of the things that I would change is maybe grieve a little bit differently. Well, we just have a, a couple minutes left. And I, I want to ask this, this final question. And that is, uh, many of us here tonight have compassion. Uh, we have wisdom. But how do we bring others to the table that maybe don't share that same compassion? How do we build out the concentric circles that are so critical to creating change? How do we bring others into the fold? Well, again, through communication, and I think what you've done tonight will at least allow the message to get out. I've seen media and other uh, venues. I think part of this discussion was streamed. And so sometimes when we do this type of work, we do it in closed uh, rooms like this one, and no one knows that it's happening, and we may have only marketed to a certain group. And so it may be a little bit you know, more intentional uh, to market to other listservs or other um, mailing lists of individuals or churches or mosques or, or civic organizations, fraternities, sororities, whatever, other groups that exist in our communities that may not necessarily be on this listserv. And so once we begin to um, generate some level of uh, awareness, then we can pique people's interest to the extent when they hear of the very um, overarching themes or topics, individuals would say around their dinner table, yeah, I'm interested in that, and yes, I would go, you know, just to, uh, you know, hear more about that. And uh, in those listening sessions, that's how I first got hooked, uh, because there were certain topical things, particularly relative to the police, and I'm like, yeah, I want to talk to them about that. <laughs> and, and that motivated me getting there, but once, once I got there, then, you know, I was diffused, <laughs> because, I mean, there was such other dynamic um, things going on that enabled me to learn some, so much more than just the agenda I thought I brought in. So um, not allowing these things to be secret, uh, because I think sometimes we like to come around and talk about these things with one another, and we have a good uh, intellectual 
con contemplative sort of exhale, and then we go back out, and no one knows that we've done it except us. And then we, we come back and do it again, the same people. Thank you. Josh, the closing words? I, I, I would say uh, two things. One, meet people where they are. Well, three things. Meet people where they are. Um, show up genuinely, because people can tell if you're not being genuine. And accept the fact that um, you're not going to reach everybody. Well, thank you, uh, Pardeep, Kailan, Tracy, Josh. Uh, thank you for coming to San Diego and sharing uh, your lessons, guiding us with a path forward. Thank you so much. I have, um, I, I have a couple thoughts about uh, how as a community we are going to move forward. Uh, first, I want to announce uh, the UT has uh, put together a podcast uh, with Pardeep that's going to be available. It's called The Conversation. It's on the UT website. We've also live streamed uh, the first part of this evening and it's also videotaped. So uh, we will distribute that for all the guests. And uh, tonight, this forum is really just the beginning. Uh, we are launching a dialogue series. It's called A Path Forward, Break Down Barriers and Build Connections. And over the next six months, we're going to have five, uh, four dialogues. One will take place at the Jewish Community Center run by the Jewish Community Foundation, another at the Bayview Baptist Church from the, uh, the African-American community, a third, the Islamic Center at San Diego from the Islamic community, and the final one at the USS Midway uh, that will be partnered with the Midway and the Union Tribune. And at each of these sessions, the first one's called Be Curious, the second one, Be Brave, the third one, Be Connected, and the final be supported. And together, as a community, we're gonna work through these dialogues. We're going to uh, meet each other, talk with each other, and come up with solutions so that this will never happen again in San Diego. It'll never happen again in our other communities. We've gained lessons from our partners. We'll continue to interact with you. And as you leave tonight, uh, we have a flyer that describes the dialogues. Please take one, uh, go on the NCRC website, sign up, and we'd like to see you uh, in the future as we work through all these issues. So on behalf of the Union Tribune, the Kroc Center, and the National Conflict Resolution Center, and our partners, thank you. Thank you for showing up tonight. And we do have light, we have light, to clear the darkness, we're going to move forward. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening to ReFocus, an occasional special podcast from the San Diego Union Tribune. To read more about the events of April 27th, go to sandiegouniontribune.com slash Chabad. Chabad is C-H-A-B-A-D. Until next time.